0: Start in verse fifteen this week. One of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. You guys awake today? Y'all stayed up too late watching college football, didn't you? <laughs> Let's pray over the Word, Lord. We love Your Word. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's bread to our souls. Father, speak to us today. Sharpen us today. Lord, drive our roots deep in Christ Jesus today. Make us better disciples. Father, it's my prayer that you make us a healthy church, a sound church. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. Thank you for your sweet presence this morning, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray Let every saint say amen. 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 Well, I was thinking this week about C.S. Lewis's trifecta argument. You know the argument. Um, he he gave the trifecta argument in *Mere Christianity*. Someone was—I don't remember who it was. Someone was reading *Mere Christianity* lately and said, "Caleb, it's so boring." And I said, "Yes, it's, it's not. It is not the Narnias or Screw Tape Letters. It's it's an apologetic, and so it's it's doctrinal and teaching." But he he gave the trifecta argument, the the liar lunatic lord argument in mere Christianity. It's it's based on the premise that Jesus claimed to be God. In John chapter eight, for instance, the Pharisees say, Are you greater than our father Abraham? And Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Now that was a very clear statement. He said, Before Abraham was created I existed. And then he uses the divine name of God, the, the I am, that the Lord gives Moses at the burning bush. Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because they understood very well what he was saying. Jesus received worship from the blind man. You remember Thomas when he says, Unless I can put my hand in his wounds, I won't believe. And when Jesus appears to him and he says, Touch, touch the holes in my hands, Thomas. And Thomas falls before him and says, My Lord, my God. He calls Jesus, my Theos, my God. And so, the premise being that throughout Jesus' life, He claimed to be God. Lewis argued that, based on that premise, based on that claim, Jesus must either be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Those are the only three arguments if the premises received it's an airtight logical argument that Jesus claiming to be god he could not just be a great moral teacher that was kind of the argument of the day we still hear that today right jesus was a great teacher or jesus was a prophet but lewis says no he claimed to be god and so one he was either a liar Someone who claimed to be God in order to gather a following. And we see this in cultic worship today. We've had a few of those movements in the States where someone claims to be God. He gathers people around them and then exploits them for their money, their goods, or other things. Or, his in claiming to be God, he could have been a lunatic... We still see that today. We see lots of folks claiming to be God, and we instinctively know that they either are experiencing some kind of mental illness or maybe demonic oppression, but we don't follow people who claim to be God. We all know that there's something going on there. Or, he is Lord. And, and Lewis argues those are the only three options. He's, he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And obviously, Lewis is going to play out in Mere Christianity that... Christ is Lord. But what I want to point out is that, that under C.S. Lewis's trifecta argument is this concept that we see throughout all of church history, and it's this: everyone must do something with Jesus. When a man predicts his own death and resurrection, and then dies and rises from the dead. When a group of up to 500 people, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, watched the man ascend into the clouds, into the heavens. When a man heals the sick, the blind, raises Lazarus from the grave when he laid there for four days. That man, his life, his testimony, his death and resurrection must be dealt with. Every person has to do something with Christ. Every religion must do something with Christ. And so, for instance, in Islam, they will say, Jesus is a great prophet, not the ultimate prophet. Of course, Muhammad was the ultimate prophet, but Jesus was a prophet. And Judaism, there's, there's. Some will say he's a false prophet. Others will say he was just a teacher in Eastern religions. He's one of many gods in Mormonism. He was a created being who lived a, a holy life and then it kind of excelled to uh, a place of deity. And you too could excel to a place of deity in Je- the Jehovah's Witness movement, the Watchtower organization. He is a created being, Michael, the archangel. In modern materialism, there's the idea that Jesus never existed, which literally every historian laughs at. Because we have more information on the life of Christ than we do any figure of antiquity. So every person has to do something with Jesus. And what you do with Jesus means everything. This is a first and fundamental question that every person has to answer, every movement has to answer. What do you believe about Jesus? Now the first seven church councils Largely dealt with this issue. Who is Jesus? What was his nature? What is his position? Nicaea, Ephesus, Chalcedon, Constantinople, the first council of Constantinople, the only one that doesn't deal with the nature and and character and position of Christ, the first at Constantinople dealt with the the nature of the Holy Spirit. But the rest of them were all about who is Christ? What is his nature? Remember the Apostles' Creed with me for a second. Will you give me the Apostles' Creed if you got it back there? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. And then this big, long section about Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. And the last section, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. That word Catholic there in church history just means universal. It doesn't refer to the Roman church. Um, It refers to the universal church, all who believe. In the same sense that the term Orthodox means just more than just the Eastern Orthodox. It, It has a set of beliefs. The Catholic Church chose that term to describe the universal church. So when the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, it means all those follow Christ. The communion of the saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, this is a 6th century creed. Most believe that it has its roots in a 3rd in a, a or 4th century creed. But did you notice how much the Apostle Creed says about Christ? And so all of the First, what we would call the ecumenical councils, the early church councils, the creed. The church is always answering this question, who is Christ? What do we believe about Christ? This is central, foundational, fundamental to everything we do. It is the foundation that we must build upon. What will you do with Jesus? So as we turn today to Colossians chapter 1. Remember, we're, Paul is writing to a church who is beginning to go after false teaching and false doctrine. They're beginning to embrace Gnostic ideas, heretical ideas. They're they're listening to people go on and on about their visions, droning on and on about their special revelation. And the first thing Paul's going to say to them... Last week we dealt with the introduction, which is standard in every epistle. The first thing Paul's going to say as he launches into an argument in 115 is he's going to begin a, a, a very poetic and beautiful articulation of this. Who is Christ? You're beginning to slide into error. You're beginning to slide into false doctrine. Let's get this established. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus to us? It's fundamental to all that the Christian faith is. Now let me read you the text. We'll talk again about the occasion. And we'll try to examine really closely, as closely as we can in the time we have. Again, this is one of the most important passages of Scripture, so we could probably talk about it for weeks. But we'll try to examine closely this this. It's, it's, it's po- poetry, absolutely, that Paul gives right at the gate when he says to a backsliding church, let's make sure you understand who Christ Jesus is. All right, so Colossians 1.15. This is what Paul wrote. him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross now let's start again with occasion and then we'll, we'll work towards this text we're told last week and throughout the entire epistle in Colossians, we're told that Epaphras, who was a disciple of Paul, planted the church at Colossae. Paul didn't plant the church, but Epaphras did. And we're told throughout the letter that Paul at this point in his life is in prison at Rome. His disciple comes to him and tells him that the church at Colossae is beginning to backslide. And so again, this isn't a church that Paul planted, but it's a church that Paul is now going to provide apostolic authority and instruction to as they are beginning to get caught up in peripheral doctrines. So remember again that Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 18 to the church, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. So we said last week that there was a type of immaturity, spiritual immaturity that was beginning to rise up in the church at Colossae a type of um, of clinging to asceticism or the worship of angels or going on and on about their own personal revelations. And Paul said last week that the health and the maturity of a church is directly related to the church's commitment to hold fast to Christ the head. Do you remember we said that? Not, they're not holding fast to Christ as the head. Again, remember that historically scholars have suggested, now this idea is, wrestled with today have suggested that the church at Colossae is dealing with the early waves of Gnosticism. Gnosticism again is the teach, the word Gnostic means knowledge. It's the, the presentation of secret knowledge that through Gnosticism you could come to a secret hidden knowledge. Now, when you start to talk about the Gospels, for instance, we have the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're, they're his, Dated to the, proper ti- the appropriate time. The church fathers all acknowledge that they were written by the disciples. They are in tune with one another. They have a, a unique yet um, synchronized presentation of the gospel message. But then you'll know if you watch the History Channel for longer than 10 minutes, which is garbage, by the way, um, <laughs> you'll learn that there are what we have historically called Gnostic Gospels floating around. The Gnostic Gospels are all dated very late. Way So for instance, the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic Gospel that sometimes the History Channel wants to present as the secret Gospel that we lost. We, it was never lost. The church just threw it away because it's garbage. The Gnostic Go- the Gospel of Thomas, it has the name of Thomas on it, but it was easily written 200 years after Thomas's death. I don't know if you know logic at all, but that just doesn't work. Okay, number one. The Gospel of Judas, the same scenario. It's dated way after the life of Judas. Um, and I don't know if you know this either, but historically we know that Jesus, Judas killed himself. Like right after Jesus um, was resurrected and ascended. So it was not the Gospel of Judas. But they all claim, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, there, there are many. They claim that Thomas had secret knowledge from Jesus. So Jesus had a plain teaching that he taught the other apostles. But Judas, Judas had the secret knowledge. Now, that was an early heresy that the church had to deal with, Gnosticism teaching that Jesus had a secret message that he gave to one apostle, not to the others, and the secret message was always something like, matter is evil, spirit is good, therefore Jesus couldn't have took on flesh because he had to be a good, um, a spirit kind of being, he couldn't be matter, then that obviously creates seriously theological issues concerning the cross, right? Like Jesus' physical body being broken for us. Gnosticism falls apart on like 18 different levels. It just does not make logical, coherent sense. And the historical church always laughed at it, okay? And said, this is ridiculous. Um, But what the church at Colossae may be dealing with is early waves of Gnosticism, which says, there is secret knowledge to be achieved as you deny yourself physical pleasure As you deny yourself um, feasting or, right, Gnosticism oftentimes would embrace mandated celibacy. So as you embrace celibacy, you can rise above matter. And in rising above matter, you achieve new spiritual heights. It's not the gospel. Jesus actually put flesh on to love us. He redeems flesh. He takes water and makes it into wine. What does Jesus have to say about creation? Not that creation is evil, but I'm going to show you the beauty of what creation will be one day when I renew all things. Isn't that the testimony of water into wine? Do you remember what they said at the, the wedding of Cana? He, this wine is even... Better. You saved the best wine for last. Jesus has no intention on making sloppy wine. He's making the good stuff. Okay? The good stuff. Um, and so Gnosticism in no way acknowledges the historic Christian faith. And and as Paul approaches this church that may be going after these ideas, that we can be more spiritual, secretly spiritual. Right, that's really the emphasis. We can have secret spiritual knowledge, and and that really puffs up our carnal pride. By the way, um, we can have secret spiritual knowledge. We'll be better than the rest of the churches. That's the idea, right? Thomas had the secret knowledge. The other disciples, they were kind of common and whatever. But Tom, if you knew what Thomas knew. And, and that, that is beginning to settle up among the church. We can be better than everyone else, have higher secret knowledge. We can, we can ascend our own humanity and find some kind of spirituality. And Paul says, no. Let's talk about who Jesus is. You've forgotten to hold fast to Christ. You've forgotten the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Remember we said last week, Christianity is not about exploring your own kind of self-revelation. It is all about exploring Christ. Who is Jesus? Losing yourself and loving Jesus. Pouring out all of your oil on the feet of Christ Jesus. So again, that's the occasion, right? A church that's kind of gone after secret knowledge. Remember again, he says that some keep going on and on about angelic visions, worshiping angels, going on and on about asceticism, or denying their flesh so that they can rise to new spirituality. And Paul says all of that is immaturity. And what you need to do, church, at Colossae, you need to grow up into Christ. And so we said that this letter is about Christian maturity. He says in Colossians 2.23... These things, talking about those teachings, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Meaning, you can, you can deny yourself food all day long, but simply denying yourself feasting is in no way going to stop the indulgence of your sexual appetite. Paul's teaching about stopping the indulgence of the flesh is to come into the presence of the Holy Spirit and to be crucified with Christ Jesus. By loving Jesus fully, focusing on His glory and His person and allowing love for Christ to drown out all of my fleshy desires. That's the teaching of the Scripture. Okay, let's turn to the text. We'll try to examine it closely. You guys with me? If you're not, I'm going to talk anyway. Okay, it's just... I told you, this is my, t- my time to talk. I listen to my wife and my kids all week long. This is my time. Don't interrupt me. <laughs> so when Paul launches into he is the image of the invisible God, it's very clear, commentators, scholars, none debate, that Paul has just launched into some form of poetry. Okay, and I tried to read it with a cadence to you, because it has a cadence to it, a a rhythm to it. And the language is poetic, it's high, and it's beautiful. And so what we find is as Paul's dealing with this this church that's backsliding into Gnosticism, he launches into some form of poetry concerning the nature of Jesus. A lot of scholars historically have always embraced that it's likely that Paul is dealing with uh, a, a historic hymn. I don't know why they put me on the screen because they think you can't see me well enough, but I'm looking good. I don't know if you see. Woo! Um, Come on. Oh, don't take it down now. Um. (laughs) Y'all stop laughing at that. So a lot of scholars historically, and there's there's still a lot of agreement on this, would say that Paul is quoting a hymn, an early Christological hymn. Now, no one is really firm about that because we don't have any historical data to prove that point. It just They just know that he's quoting some form of poetry. There's agreement on that. And so what we have here is one of three things. Paul is either, in this moment, okay, and I, I can't emphasize enough here that, that the introduction of epistles, there's, there's a format to epistles. Okay, just like when we write a letter, when you write an email, right? I write, Dear Haley, Hope you're having a great day. And then I launch into my, you didn't fold my laundry. You know what I'm saying? Then you launch into the body of the letter. Um, I've never written that email. And then there's a conclusion, right? Like, best regards. Hope you're doing well. We follow the same format that they would have fallen in Greco-Roman era. And so what we studied last week was very much the introduction. It was the Dear Church at Classe. I am praying for you. I, I'm thankful for you. I, I'm, I'm believing for your best days ahead. And then what we started today was the launching into the body. It was, why don't you fold my laundry? Um, and so what Paul just started was the launch into the meat of the letter. And the way that he started it was by appealing to some kind of poetic Um, prose about the deity, supremacy, sufficiency of Christ. And so um, what we're dealing with is one of three things. That's where I was going. One, it could be a hymn, which a lot of scholars embrace. We could be studying today an early Christological hymn. Two, it could be early Christian poetry that Paul has memorized, put to memory. Three, it could be Paul's own poetry, that Paul is writing poetry here to give to the church to remember Christ's headship. Either way, I think it's important that you recognize that this feels creedal. Do you know what I mean by that? This is Paul quoting some kind of, of, of a poetry that he has applied to his memory. Okay, it's very likely that, that much of the church was already singing this. That there was doctrine, this is doctrine, applied to memory... Through some kind of prose. And so this is some kind of of, of creed. At least it's, it's creedal in that it's establishing doctrine through memorization. And when the church begins to backslide, Paul says, let's get back to memorizing doctrine. Notice that it's it's going to be in this kind of rhythmic, nice, easy, beautiful poetry that you can remember, quote to one another. Remember he'll say, like, sing hymns to each other. Get back to remembering doctrine. And what doctrine are we talking about? What is the the supreme doctrine of the church? Who is Christ? That's the entirety of what's happening here. Get back to doctrine. Let's get back to who is Christ. Now, if I could make a modern application... um, the church in 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 our nation the church in, in, in america has gone through many um, movements cycles rhythms um, we had the charismatic movement in the 60s and 70s that really shaped and changed the way we did church in the west we we've we've, have, we've had a lot of a lot of movements that have flowed through the church and and obviously we're living in a post-christian society right like america is at this point statistically, post-Christian, but we're also, uh, maybe this is even silly to say, but as I think about church, where the church is going in our nation, I think that we are, we are post the seeker-friendly movement. I think we had a movement for the last 15 years of, of seeker-friendly church, which the, the thrust was evangelism, but the kind of mantra was do whatever you have to do make people as comfortable as you want to make them, as you can make them for the sake of evangelism. But I think we're post the seeker-friendly movement, and I think much of the church, especially with COVID, is now kind of on their heels wondering, where does the church go from here? What's the next movement? What's the next emphasis? And um, it's not my intent to critique the seeker-friendly movement. That's a sermon for another day. I'm just saying that we, we are posted. Many are coming out of it going, what's next? And we are dealing with a unique post-Christian society that is attacking our beliefs and our values. And much of the church is now on the heels going, what now? I want to suggest to you that the what now would be to go back. We need to look forward by going back. We need to get back to doctrine. We need to get back, and this is so anti, what the, what the charismatic movement produced in us was in the church in America was beautiful. It was an emphasis on the spirit, which by God we needed. An emphasis on the gifts of the spirit, an emphasis on the power of the spirit. We don't want to let go of any of that. Um, that, that was beautiful and wonderful. Um, but, but at the same time, we began to lose liturgy, which on one hand we're thankful for because liturgy can be dry, um, for the sake of being dry almost, but, but by losing liturgy, we, all, we also lost creed. Um, we lost catechism. And as moderns, we don't like the idea of creed and catechism, because, because we really don't want to talk about doctrine. We want to talk about um, what's called praxis, meaning we, we want to talk about my life, how you can make my life better and what's going what's to make the church strong in the days to come? It's, it's not necessarily looking back at liturgy or looking back at catechism, looking back at creed, just for the sake of trying to return to a liturgical feel. But, but we need to think about how do we retrieve, how do we recover sound doctrine in a way that we, we build a sound framework for the coming days, the coming generation, because what's going to be attacked by the post-Christian society is our doctrine. And if you don't know what you believe in the days to come, you're in for a wild ride. Okay, and so, again, I'm not making any claim about changing our style, or I'm not making any claim, other than we need to recognize the value of creed, of doctrine, of... Catechism, again, I know that's like such a, it's almost like a curse word in the modern church movement, but we need to recognize the value of it and, and then to get back to systematic doctrine, teaching our kids doctrine. What do we believe about the Godhead? When's the last time we read the Apostles' Creed? All of the church for the entire 2,000 years of her existence. Well, again, the Apostles' Creed, earliest 5th century. quoted the Apostles' Creed to one another so that they knew what the church, but what is Orthodox Christianity? But we don't really focus on that anymore. And all I'm really trying to highlight today is that as Paul turned to a weak church, he turned to some form of doctrinal creed. Let's let's talk about Christ. Who is Christ? Okay, so let's step into the creed. The, the poetry, the hymn, whatever whatever we're dealing with here. And let's try to examine what are the things that Paul wanted this weak church to know, to remember. One, the first thing we want to talk about is um, the deity of Christ Jesus. This is a cornerstone of the church, that you are sure that Christ is Lord. He is, he is God. He is fully deity. And so the first thing that Paul launches into is he is the image of the invisible God. He is God's image. The fourth question of the Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. What is God? God is an infinite, eternal spirit, outside of time, space, and matter. Yet God, in His, in his wisdom, And the second person of the Trinity put on matter. He put on an image. What is God like? Jesus. What is Jesus like? God. Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father. Jesus says, Philip, don't you know me? That, that question to the mind of Jesus was, was what we would call stupid. Show us the Father. Don't you know me? What is Jesus saying? If you've known me, you've known the Father. I am the exact image of Of the Father, I am the the expression into the material world of the infinite, eternal, invisible Spirit who is God. I am that expression, so that the world could see, know, touch, hear, feel what God is like. Here I am. Watch what Paul writes: For in Him, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Christ. All the attributes that are unique to God are present. His goodness, His mercy, His kindness, His power, His strength, His wisdom, all that, His justice, all the attributes of the triune God are pleased to fully dwell in the person of Jesus. Christ, in other words, Paul launches in by saying, Christ is fully God. He's not a good teacher. is not just a prophet. He is not a created angel. He is not the uh, created being that somehow comes to tell us about God. No, Christ is fully God. And the church historically would say to anyone who does not embrace that truth, you are a heretic. And, um, oh, I told you last week that I'm reading Chesterton, just for fun, which you should too. Um, And Chesterton... Oh shoot, which one? Oh, it's his first book Heretics, where he talks about the idea that somewhere in the 20th century the concept of heretic became funny and lighthearted, and many would say, "Oh, I'm a guess, I'm a heretic." And 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 Chesterton's going after the concept of uh, that historically uh heretic was not funny. When someone embraces heretical doctrine, historically they are cut off from the body, which is Christ's church. That the church should not embrace people who hold to heretical doctrines, but should reject and resist them as wolves in sheep's clothing. And so the church has always said, first and foremost, Jesus is God. Again, that's all of the church councils. First thing Paul says to this backsliding church is remember that he is the image of the invisible God. And this poetic, even that line translated to English feels poetic, right? He's the image of the invisible God. He, he's saying, remember that Christ is fully the eternal God of the universe. And resist anyone who denies that claim. And again, Gnosticism would deny that claim, what, what the church may have been dealing with. First question, who is Christ? Backsliding church, you need to answer this question, classe: Who is Christ? And Paul releases in his creed, He is the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Him. He possesses all the attributes of God. He is fully God, the second person of the Trinity. The first question the backsliding church must answer is, Who is Jesus? And her response must be God. That is the only Christian answer. Next, Paul says, I want you to gaze on the headship of Christ. And so he says, He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that line has created a lot of confusion in church history. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses today cling to that line, meaning they want it to mean that Jesus was the first created being that created all of creation. So they would say that he is a created being that creates. And and you need to know that that's not what the apostles meant. That's not what the early church ever thought this line meant. That the Old Testament uses the term firstborn to refer to headship. So for instance, um, Psalm 89 verse 27 through 28 This is, um, most scholars believe and the early church would say that Paul here in this hymn is quoting this psalm where the psalm says, And I will make, speaking of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep him in forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. God says to David in Psalm 89, I will make him the firstborn. Now you remember David was the youngest of the brothers, he wasn't even brought in before Samuel when Samuel goes to anoint the prophets. So the term here is prototokos, which it, it, it can refer to the, the firstborn as in a brother, but in this context it refers to heir or head. And, and hear, hear what it says of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest king of all the earth. And so when the scripture refers to Christ as the firstborn of all creation, it is not referring to origin. It's referring to position. That he is the head, the eternal head. The very first church council in the year 325 AD established um, against Arianism was the idea that Jesus was a created being. The very first, the first thing the church ever said when they were legally allowed together was, he is eternal. And they've always, the church has always understood the firstborn of all creation to refer to rank, preeminence, right? The firstborn of a family is the heir. He's the honored one. He sits at the head of the table. He's to be followed as the leader. He's the one who possesses all, the supreme one. And so when the scripture refers to Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, he is saying that he is the king who is supreme over all kings. He sits at the head of the table of the church. He is the preeminent one. He is the rightful heir, meaning he doesn't have to jockey for or fight for or murder anybody to sit at the head. He is the rightful heir of all creation, the leader, the one to be obeyed. I could spend another 30 minutes explaining to you why the idea that that means creation is ridiculous, but I don't have that time because I've got this little clock on the back of the wall that's ticking down, um, and it's currently telling me that I'm going talking too long. So if you guys could um, unplug it, that'd be great. And then in verse 18, Paul says, he is the head of the body, the church. Again, we talked about this last week. Meaning he's the, he's the one who establishes all the thinking. His word from his mouth is what establishes the authority. He's the one who drives the church, who moves the church. He's the head of the body, who we grow up into, we cherish and love. He's the, the head. And so what Paul just said was, number one, I want you to know that Jesus is God. And number two, I want you to know that he is Lord. He is the head of all creation. All creation was created through him and for him, to serve him, to belong to him. The physical realm and the spiritual realm, rulers and authorities and powers of the air, they were all created for him to obey and worship and glorify Christ. He is the supreme head. Paul says to the backsliding church, Who is Jesus? One God to Lord. Historically, the church would have called anyone who does not honor the headship of Christ a heretic. And we need to return to the place where we remember Jesus' lordship. That he's master. He's the head of the family. Where he tells us to move, we move. We don't get to pick and choose which moral teachings we like. That's not headship. If you're a part of this flock, if you're a part of the body of Christ where he is the head, you don't get to pick and choose how you're going to live. The head tells us how to live. We have an authority. I know we hate authority, but we have it. Lastly, watching that little red clock, the, the last thing that, that is really the thrust of this, of this hymn, this poem that we're reading is this. Paul is saying that he wants you to understand that Christ has been God and Lord forever, for eternity. And so he said, first, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, He is the creator of all things. All created things were created by Him and for Him. And so it immediately takes your mind to Genesis 1. At, at the origins, the foundation of the world, there's a really important logical thing happening here too. If, if all created things come from Christ, then Christ cannot belong to the category of created. He's uncreated. It's really clear. So to say that the, he's the firstborn of creation means that he's the first creation is so logically incoherent. It's not even funny. Um, right there, Paul establishes categories and there's a category of created and uncreated. He is the, falls in the uncreated category. Therefore, he is able to create the unmoved mover for, those of you who want to do philosophy today. Um, The first thing Paul says is that he was at the beginning. He created all things. He is the the starter. They were created all things, even, even spiritual things, were created for Christ to serve Christ. The second thing he says is that Christ is the sustainer. In Christ, all things hold together. The universe, this fickle thing that we live on, you know, that's spinning around, like really crazy to think about. All of this is held together by Christ, Hebrews chapter 1 says. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. We like to emphasize Christ as our daily bread. He is our sustainer, our nutrient. And so... All things have their beginning in Christ, and all things today that exist, they're held together by Christ. He is the sustainer today. And then then the rest of the, the, the hymn here was going to emphasize that that Christ is the Redeemer, the Recreator, the Restorer at, at the last day. And so He is the, the 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 first risen one, the firstborn of the dead. His resurrection, he's the first fruit, would be the Hebraic way of understanding that. He's, he's the first resurrected one. The first one to get out of the grave. All will follow in his footsteps on the final day. He's the first fruit of new creation. He is reconciling all things to himself, making us right with God again, redeeming humanity. He is bringing the new Jerusalem. And so, again, what Paul just said was, I want you to know... Who is Jesus? One, He is God. Two, He is Lord. Three, He is Creator, Sustainer, and Finisher. And Paul is saying to the backslidden church, make sure you get your foundation right. Get your doctrine right. So in conclusion, worship team, come from me. Come for me, not from me. That would be weird. Very strange. Again, Paul approaches heresy with doctrine. Jesus is the eternal God. Doctrine surrounding the person of Jesus. He is the eternal God. He is the head of all creation, the Lord of all creation. He is our creator, he is our sustainer, and he is our redeemer. If you're sliding into error, church, Paul says, get back to the creed, get back to plain doctrine. This is the foundation that the church has to be built upon. If the foundation isn't solid, the house falls. And so, um, again, to, to come to my analyzation of where we are as a church in our culture, many of us are looking around going, what's the next thing? We need to get back to our foundation. Otherwise, whatever we do next will fall and crumble. And finally, what I'd like to say is is this, the last point of application. What Paul just said was that your entire existence is for Jesus. He created you. He sustains you. He will redeem you. Everything about your life, Jesus should be the center of. And if Jesus is not the center of your life, then your entire life is built on shifting sand. And will fall sooner or later. That's what we call hitting rock bottom, right? Sooner or later, you will crumble if you do not make Jesus the cornerstone. He also just said that you cannot cannot have life cannot have fulfillment. We talk so much in our society about fulfillment. You cannot be fulfilled without placing Jesus at the center of your life. Think of like the chiropractic concept, right? If if Jesus is not the dead center of who you are and all you do, of your family, of your church, if Jesus is not right at the center, everything else is out of alignment. And until you get that alignment right, you're going to feel pain and ache in every corner and crevice of your body. And from there, I was thinking uh, this week about Pascal when he said this. He said, he's talking about the craving in our souls. He said, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is this empty print and trace? Meaning in the garden at one point we had fulfillment, but now it seems really clear that we're not fulfilled. Man tries in vain to fill this crevice with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. though none can help, since the infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. You've heard Pascal quoted as saying that "In, in, in the heart of man, there is a God-shaped hole." And that's not what Pascal said. What he said was what I just read to you. But what he said was, in your soul, there is an infinite abyss. Meaning, there's a constant hunger. You could try to stuff in the abyss sexuality. You could try to stuff in the abyss alcohol abuse or drug addiction. And and, and when you stuff in that abuse materialism, right? Bigger house will make me happy. Anyone with four licks of common sense would say, Bigger House will make you happy for maybe 18 hours. Right? Because there's an infinite abyss, an infinite hunger that in us that longs to be satisfied. The only thing that can satisfy infinite is infinite. Meaning, there's a hole in you that requires a God who just keeps on giving. Right? And you can try to be satisfied by sexuality, but you know that that's going to leave you wanting and, and the spiral that's going to put you on is only destructive. It, but the only thing that can keep on giving is Christ Jesus himself. When you place him in the center of your soul, he, he gives you daily bread. I remember he's, he's called the, this everlasting fountain that just keeps welling up, a spring that never runs dry. There's a thirst in you that will not be quenched by anything that is not infinite. You were created to be satisfied by the infinite God of the universe. And if Jesus is not at the core of who you are, of your family, or of your church, it's only a matter of time before your face meets the concrete. Okay, does that make sense? If you go ahead and stand to your feet, we'll get ready to close here. Altar team, if you guys want to get in place. One... If you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never come into covenant with Christ, if you've never surrendered who you are to know Him, to love Him, and serve Him, today is is the best day for you, okay? The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Today you can come to redemption. I do want to say, I don't know why I feel led to say, that in our society, many times we've been taught that if you just try to intellectually ascend to belief then you've known Christ then you're fully redeemed but the scripture says that the demons believe and they shudder that satan has good theology and so christianity is not just about ascending into belief that's not quite the full picture it's 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 believing that he's lord believing in your heart and confessing in your mouth his lordship it's 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 the, like the covenant of marriage it's coming under the head it's saying to Christ you will be my all in all you will be my God. You will be my Lord. You will be my sustainer. It's not just saying I, I intellectually believe in you so that I can be forgiven. It's saying my heart and my soul and my mind will belong fully to you. You will be my lover. You will be my satisfier. I will be nourished by you and you alone. That's really the heart of, of Christianity. And so I feel like there may be some in the room who would say, yeah, as a kid, I, I intellectually kind of chose to believe in Jesus believing that I would be forgiven of my sins and then the rest of my life has been kind of weak and I want to say maybe come to the altar today and, and really commit yourself to his lordship does that make sense really commit yourself to him so if that's you, if you need forgiveness of sins, redemption from hell, to be born into God's kingdom, and, and you need to say to Christ today, I want to belong to you fully for you to satisfy my soul. I want to open up the altars to you to ask you to come. We can lead you in a prayer today, lead you in committing your life to Christ, and you can leave here new, satisfied, Second, if you are in any way dealing with some kind of demonic oppression, we believe that, I don't know if you realize this, but demons didn't go anywhere. Um, and so if you're in any way dealing with some kind of demonic oppression, we would love to pray for you and ask the Holy Spirit to, to kind of wash you of that. If you're dealing with any kind of sickness, physical sickness, we want to pray for you. There was a word today that somebody's having an issue with their esophagus or um, bacterial infection. We believe God's here to heal you today. The altars are open. I want to ask you to Come. I want to ask you, if you need to just say to Christ, you are my cornerstone, nothing else. If you need to just recenter, I want to ask you to come to the altars today and let's believe God for healing and deliverance and for satisfaction. So they're open, come.